You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that only offers curated professional-grade brands that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired, always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoffmanStore.com. DearHoffmanStore.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. I very much uh, enjoy doing podcasts, uh, this one uh, in particular, because I'm talking to one of my favorite colleagues, Dr. Georgia Ede, author of a great book. Uh, you got to get a hold of it for 2024. I think it'll set you on a good course. Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind, A Powerful Plan to Improve Mood, Overcome Anxiety, and, predict, and Protect Memory for a Lifetime of Optimal Mental Health. And in part one, we kind of laid down the groundwork for uh, how uh, diet may impact mood and mental health. Um, I wanted to, uh, before we get into some practical suggestions for how people can implement this, because uh, the book uh, is divided into several parts. And one of the parts is actually, you know, practical suggestions, uh, how to implement the diet, what types of foods to eat. Um, it, it's not a diet book, but, you know, uh, you do provide people with, you know, not just theory, but actual tangible uh, uh, suggestions for how they can uh, implement some of these important concepts. Uh, you, in the beginning of the book, you, you take issue, you know, you are um, a nutritional scientist. Uh, you study the literature. Your training is in psychiatry as a Harvard trained MD. Uh but you take issue with the way that nutritional epidemiology is uh, sketching out for us the right way to eat. because And it's very perplexing for the public, as you know, is that, you know, one day a study says that, uh, you know, everybody should avoid red meat. Meat is bad for you. Meat kills you. Then another study exonerates it. Same thing with dairy. Same thing with coffee. Uh, you know, and it's it just bewildering. You know, people don't know. Should I be on a vegan diet? Should I be on a carnivore diet? Uh, the studies are just baffling. What's going on? I'm so glad you asked about this because it is really confusing for people. And it's so confusing uh, and, you know, sort of the headline whiplash that a lot of people have, have lost faith in nutrition science and in nutrition headlines and guidelines uh, and kind of given up and thought, you know, well, everything in moderation. You know, why why yeah. should I pay attention right. to take, take the middle course? You know, uh, I have a I'll have a little exactly. bit of sugar. I have a little bit of you know all the you know like they say gluten free. I'll have some bread, a little bit of bread, a little bit of dairy, a little bit of all the basic food groups. And I think that's the way that uh, the marketplace, you know, and the food industry wants it. You know, is that they want us to be you know just kind of throw up our hands and just go down to the uh, supermarket aisle and, and partake of everything, you know, a little bit of everything and in moderation, as you say, you know, what the golden rule. Exactly. And uh, the reason why 
there's so much confusion and so much uh, um, so these flip-flopping headlines is because the vast majority of those headlines, as well as the vast majority of the the, um, the uh, research that goes into creating our national guidelines, uh, comes from a type of study called a nutrition epidemiology study. And that, uh, unfortunately, that kind of study is a wholly unscientific method. Uh, it is essentially guesswork based on very flawed uh, food and health questionnaires. And so, um, and I go into great detail about this in the book because I really want people to understand how bad these studies are and how uh, worthless they are and really why we we cannot afford to pay attention to stake our our health uh the decisions that we make about food for our, ourselves and our families on this kind of research um it is it is literally guesswork based on wild guesses about what people have been eating and and how those how those choices are related to uh our 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 health and so uh, I explain in the book that what happens with these studies is that, um, let's say, uh, uh, let's say they're looking at the relationship between, say, your risk for developing dementia and, uh, and how much fruit, how many berries, you know, your berry intake. This is a really common type yeah. of study. Um, berries are brain food. You know, we eat a lot of berries. <laughs> So I, I go in a lot of, into a lot of detail about this in, in one of the chapters in the books, showing how ridiculous uh, these berry studies are. But essentially, they're asking questions such as, you know, how many cups of blueberries uh, do you typically consume? Uh, have you typically consumed over the past year? And you are then asked to quantify um, in in cups per year of you know how many blueberries per week you know per week over the past year, and of course nobody can answer these questions accurately. Um, I eat a very limited diet; there are a very small number of foods. It's not a very diverse diet. I can't tell you what I ate a week ago. Yeah, <laughs> ago. me neither. So you know, and so these are wild guesses, and you're not allowed to say I don't know, I can't remember. Yep. You are forced to choose a quantity, mm -hmm. and that's that's the only data in the study. Yeah. That's not data. There's nothing and, to measure. And some people uh, either forget, or some people virtue signal. They claim like more ver dietary virtue, uh, and uh, other people, you know, conceal some of their dietary indiscretions. Uh, so you know, you got uh, some confounding effects due to these recall studies. Uh, I think the other problem is bias. Because there's a lot of bias depending on who does the study. Uh, for instance, uh, the Harvard TC, TH Chan Center, uh, of which you may be familiar because you were trained at Harvard, uh, kind of comes from a, a, a vegan or vegetarian perspective. And they also come from, uh, a kind of a, a climate change perspective. And so when they want to issue suggestions about what people should eat, it's kind of admixed with suggestions about how to save the planet uh, and, you know, reduce our carbon footprint, uh, which, you know, what they're saying is, you know, we, well, you know, we're pretty certain about the science, but even if we're wrong, it's better for the planet if we eat less meat because the cows are, you know, belching methane into the atmosphere and it's like, you know, you're high in the food chain and whatever. Their carbon footprint is worse than if we were growing soybeans. 
That's so true. And, you know, uh, the, the, the relationship between our modern food production system, both for plants and animals, uh, both plant and animal foods and, uh, the health of the planet and the health of, of the, you know, the, the creatures that we share the planet with. This is a really complicated topic with a lot of nuance in it and a lot of different opinions. And the science in that area is not as settled as a lot of people have been led to believe. But regardless, regardless of what may be what may be or may not be true about the relationship between uh, eating animal foods and and, you know, planetary health um, and uh, is regardless of, of what may be true in that area. We need if we're talking about nutrition and health, we need to stay focused on on what the truth is about which foods are healthiest for us. And I'm going to quote my friend and colleague, Nina Teicholz, who, of course, wrote an amazing book, a wonderful book called Big Fat Surprise. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I'm going to quote her and say, you know, she says, you know, let's first figure out which diet is um, is healthiest for us and then figure out how to make that diet more sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, these are two different questions. So I'm not qualified, you know, to comment on environmental science. I'm going to, I focus in the book on what the truth is, the biological truth about which foods are healthiest for our brains and bodies. And, and, and that's a big enough topic <laughs> for one book. Um, I am very, very sensitive to these other issues and I do address them in the book. I do, I, I don't shy away from those questions, but that's not the focus of the book. Well, there's a lot of literature on the relationship between the vegetarian diet or, and especially the vegan diet and mental health. And some of the studies are coming in uh, kind of alarming, suggesting that there may be a correlation between uh, a, very, a strict vegan diet and depression, anxiety, and various problems. Some people say, well, maybe that's reverse causation because maybe people who are a little too obsessed about diet, uh, maybe they're already a little bit uh, eccentric perhaps. And that may account for the fact that there's a higher incidence of depression and anxiety. But is there a mechanistic reason why a vegan or vegetarian diet may be bad for brain health? Well, there's. I, I want to be really clear here and say that just as we can't use nutrition epidemiology to, uh, to condemn red meat, we right. can't use nutrition That's fair. epidemiology to condemn vegan diets. So uh, what I want to what I want to make clear for listeners is that there is no experimental science uh, showing that a, a vegan diet is uh, causes mental health problems or that a vegan diet cures mental health problems. So we all we have right now that the the, the the quality of the science in this area is simply we we can't rely on it. So we have a lot of guesswork going on. We have on both sides on both sides of the nutrition debate. Um, what we can say, though, and this is where I think uh, where I think you were going with this, and where 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 I think it's important that we we go, um, is that there is it's it's un it's undeniable that in order to properly nourish your brain and your body, you must include at least some animal food in the diet because there are some molecules, quite a few of them, which are very difficult, if not impossible, in some cases to obtain from plant foods. And that's just a biological fact. Well, so, what are some of them like uh, omega-3 fatty acids, EPA, and things like that? Uh, yes. Carnitine or, you know, some of the amino acids, uh, vitamin B12, for example, those types of things? 
Yes, I mean there are, there are many examples. The, I think some of the most important ones are the ones you touched on. So B twelve, a lot of people are aware of. Vitamin B twelve, of course, does not exist in plant foods, but neither do, as you mentioned, neither do the omega three fatty acids that we actually need. So these are EPA and DHA uh, are only found in animal foods. They're also in algae, but we can't we can't extract them from algae unless we consume an algae derived supplement, mm-hmm. which I do strongly recommend. For, for any of your listeners yep. who yep. follow vegan diets. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so the omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, can only be found in, in animal fats. And so that's, uh, that's very, very important. That you, you know, the, the type of omega-3s that are found in plants, it is called ALA, uh, we are, have, are very, vo- very poor converters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's almost impossible. Yeah, and there's, in a, there's cases, a genetic uh, polymorphism on that. Some people, you know, maybe due to ancestral uh, conditions, uh, do a better job at making that conversion. Other people, maybe more Nordic people, of, are virtually non-existent. They can't subsist on vegetable oils. That's exactly right. And, and, and regardless of your ancestry, pregnant women cannot turn enough ALA mm-hmm. into EPA and need for the developing brain of, of, a, of a new baby. So, um, th- you know, these are really important. Uh, one of the things I point out in the book is, is that, you know, a vegan diet may be, uh, a, you know, a, a, an acceptable strategy for you. It's not optimal, but you might be able to, to get away with, you might be able to get everything you need from a vegan diet if you supplement very carefully and uh, you are not uh, pregnant or a growing child, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so uh, you know, I, I think there's uh, there's uh, there's some important ifs, ands, and buts that go along with with um, with following a vegan diet. Indeed. Uh, okay, so it seems to me that the way you break it down in the book is if you want to. Uh, change your diet, change your mind, that they're kind of, uh, there's an entry level, which is kind of a, a modified paleo diet, which is lower in carbs. It's not bereft of carbs. That's one level. That's more your whole foods kind of diet. That's paleo-ish. And then if that's not delivering results after a certain period of time, you can go to a keto diet, a ketogenic diet, which is ultra low in carbs. And then there's the the ultimate level of you know dietary rigor, which is the carnivore diet. Let, let's explore those levels. Am I stating it correctly? Is that what you lay out in the book? Absolutely, that's exactly right. And and I like the way you put entry level because the reason why I put three different strategies in the book um, is that I want people to to be able to engage with different strategies as they feel comfortable and as they feel necessary. Not everybody is going to want to eat a ketogenic diet, uh, and not everybody's going to need to eat a ketogenic diet. So um, it's there for people who need it or want it. Um, but I do have this other, this, this, um, you know, uh, sort of simpler, simpler approach that may work for a lot of people, which is kind of a low glycemic, kind of lower carbohydrate diet. It, it provides about 90 grams of carbohydrate per day as opposed to, you know, below 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it allows for a serving of, of, of uh, starch or fruit with each meal. And I think that that's, um, you know, I think a lot of people would find that pretty acceptable. And so it's all from whole foods, you know, fruits and vegetables and, you know, meat and seafood and, and, and things like that. So um, a very simple whole foods diet. And, uh, and, you know, and as you said, you can graduate to a ketogenic diet if, if necessary or if interested. And if you've got a lot of issues, um, uh, a lot of digestive issues or unexplained 
health problems, uh, chronic pain, autoimmune diseases, gut problems that aren't responding to these other uh, uh, levels of intervention, you could even explore a carnivore diet, which mm-hmm. is a very low plant or plant-free approach, at least for a time, to to see if that quiets things down. So that's interesting that you mention that there are other conditions that are responsive to this type of dietary restriction. You pain, painful conditions. You're thinking perhaps like things like fibromyalgia, uh, uh, or digestive conditions, maybe like uh, severe irritable bowel syndrome, or even ulcerative colitis. You're saying that that. Uh, those are conditions that respond to virtual elimination of, of plant foods and dependency on on animal foods. Is that correct? Yes. And so uh, for, for some people who are very sensitive or have a lot of gut damage or immune system uh, compromise, uh, food sensitivity issues, for those people, sometimes simply you know, working out the carbohydrate, you know, getting your carbohydrate to the right level to what I call your personal sweet spot, whatever that is for your metabolism, sometimes that doesn't help enough because you may be very sensitive uh, to, uh, you know, even some whole foods, uh, even low carbohydrate whole foods in the diet, things like cruciferous vegetables, uh, for example, mm-hmm. uh, fiber for some people can be a real irritant. So uh, there, there are different there there are different strategies that people can explore depending on what they happen to be suffering with and so all three of these diets i i call them quiet diets because they're quieter on insulin levels they're quieter on glucose levels they also quiet inflammation mm-hmm. oxidative stress and they're quieter on, and gentler on the gut uh and and on the nervous system as well so they're less irritating i've, I've chosen a list of foods that are less irritating so um if somebody is really struggling um, with unexplained uh, health issues, it can be very helpful to at least for a time explore the potential of a low plant or plant-free carnivore diet because it is the least irritating mm-hmm. food group, most highly and easily digestible and nutritious food group. There's echoes of the plant paradox by Dr. Stephen Gundry in your book because you talk about lectins, you talk about some of the potentially toxic compounds that are found, say, in nightshades. Uh, you talk about, and this is kind of revealing to me, uh, things that may be present in, for example, cruciferous vegetables, which we think are so nutritious and generally are, uh, but some of these plant compounds uh, may have an irritative effect in sensitive individuals. And then, of course, there's the oxalate issue, which we explored in a recent uh, podcast, because uh, oxalates uh, can have harmful effect, not for everyone. Uh, you know, some people can eat spinach galore and they're, they seem to be fine, but others might have to uh, try an elimination of some of these things, right? That's right. And so, I mean, this is a topic that I've just found fascinating for so many years. I'm really, uh, um, uh, I, I, I just find the pl- a plant food <laughs> uh, chemistry just absolutely fascinating. And uh, as some of your listeners may know from either having read The Plant Paradox or being familiar with some of the principles behind carnivore diets, is that plants defend themselves silently with the use of chemical weapons that they've developed, um, you know, quite cleverly over hundreds of millions of years. You know, they, they have to protect themselves. Bitter just compounds like that make animals not want to eat them and so on. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, these, these, I mean, we have, a, we have evolved alongside these plants. 
So we do have mechanisms in our bodies to protect ourselves from a lot of these compounds. Um, you know, we have a gut lining, we have an immune system. Uh, you know, we, in, in many cases, we don't absorb very well a lot of these compounds in plants because, and that's, that's a good thing. Uh, and the ones that we do absorb, we often will rapidly detoxify and eliminate from the body as fast as humanly possible to protect ourselves and minimize the damage that they can cause. So we have our own defense mechanisms, but what if those defense mechanisms have broken down? And, and they have in a lot of cases, a lot of us have got damage and immune health compromised these days. Um, and also some of these toxins are harder to, uh, are harder to, um, protect ourselves from than others. So some of these compounds do cross into the bloodstream. They cr can cross into our cells. They can cross into our brains. And so for some of us, um, being careful, being aware of which foods are the most egregious ones. Which plant foods contain the most egregious toxins? The lectins and nightshades and cassava, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, grains, legumes, nightshades, cassava. These are some of the things that I advise people to avoid if they're trying to, um, ex you know, trying to figure out how much their diet is maybe responsible for their mental health condition. So, yeah, I mean, I think being aware of those toxins is really, um, I think, can be really, really helpful for some people. On a carnivore diet, uh, how do you make sure you get enough uh, potassium? Because potassium is really you know, the province of plant foods. And on a carnivore diet, you know, you may get, you know, plenty of certain nutrients, but others are in short supply. And, uh, you know, what about the phytonutrients that you get? The so-called, all these, the rainbow nutrients that are present in fresh fruits and vegetables. Can people still do okay on this diet for at least a, finite period of time while they recover? Oh, of course. I mean, there are, there are now examples in the world of people following carnivore diets for, you know, 20 years uh, and, and still, you know, uh, feeling very well. Um, uh, now we can't use that as an, we can't use that as proof of anything, but I do want to mention that there are certainly now a growing number of anecdotal cases mm -hmm. of people thriving on, on carnivore diets. By the way, this is January um, is carnivore diet months. Did you know that? I did know that World Carnivore Month started by Dr. Sean Baker. Exactly. So uh, that could, that could be kind of an impetus for your your book uh, preview as well. You can kind of add that to your <laughs> PR package. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and so yeah, doc Dr. Baker started World Carnivore Month I believe about seven years ago, uh, and it's really you know it's really been very very popular. Um, so. So yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for uh, for uh, an, a, a low plant or plant free diet approach. And you were asking about can you get enough nutrients from carnivore diets? So because mm -hmm. uh, we always think of we're taught to think of fruits and vegetables as the as the foods that are teeming with nutrients, but actually compared to animal foods, they're relatively nutrient poor. Um, particularly the grains and legumes that we are told should be the foundation of our diet. Mm -hmm. Th those are not only very poor in nutrients, they, uh, they actually contain lots of anti-nutrients that interfere with our ability to, to access nutrients. So, so, uh, animal foods are much more nutritious, but there are, there are a few nutrients that are harder, can be at least theoretically harder to obtain from animal foods. Um, and so I do address those in the, the chapter in the book about carnivore diets. And, uh, so, it, and the, the nutrients that are hardest to obtain from animal foods are vitamin C and calcium. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if you're including, especially if you're including some, uh, organ meat, particularly liver in the diet, a little bit of liver, it doesn't be a lot. Um, then you, uh, and you're eating enough animal fat in your diet, then you're, you'll be getting all the nutrients you need. 
um, with the possible exception of vitamin C and calcium. And so, um, and it's, it's really questionable whether, whether we need to supplement those things or go out of our way to eat special types of animal foods to obtain enough of those things. But, um, so I address this head on in the book in more detail, but essentially, um, you can, you can meet your requirements if you eat, uh, certain types of animal foods. So for example, shrimp is a good source of calcium. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, and I, uh, so you don't need to eat, and lots of people are sensitive to dairy, and I actually advise against dairy in, in the book, or at least experimenting with the dairy-free period. Um, so calcium is one of the, one of the, um, nutrients that's harder to get from muscle meat. There's, there isn't as much calcium in muscle meat as there is in some, you know, for example, dairy products or even cruciferous vegetables. But, um, but you can get calcium from shrimp, for example. Uh, vitamin C is always a big question because it is true that plant foods contain much more vitamin C, uh, fruits and certain vegetables, especially, you know, um, the colorful vegetables contain more vitamin C, but, but, when you're eating a low carbohydrate diet, you need a lot less vitamin C. And it, it, it's been shown time and time again that animal foods do contain some vitamin C if you don't overcook them. And we, it, we really don't need very much vitamin C at all. Um, our requirements are quite low, um, on, on an animal based diet. So, some of these questions have to do, uh, you know, there, uh, there's a, an expert, in, expert uh, in carnivore diets by the name of Amber O'Hearn, hmm. uh, who wrote a paper about this and, and writes quite eloquently about, about this online as well. She, um, she's, she makes the point that our nutrient requirements are context dependent. Mm-hmm. Meaning the amount of nutrients we need depends on what we're eating. So if you're eating a very high carbohydrate diet, you're going to need a lot more, say, for example, yeah. magnesium. So that's but, but just that's, one example. But that's provided for in plant food. And maybe that's the key to the fact that humans evolved with a great deal of uh, dietary plasticity that we were able to inhabit many environments uh, across the world from equatorial regions to Arctic regions. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have the Eskimos who, you know, eat, uh, you know, seal meat, whale blubber and so on, uh, and fish. And then you have, uh, virtual vegetarians who inhabit equatorial regions. And it's the same species. It's Homo sapiens, but we seem to be able to turn on and turn off uh, genes selectively to make us able to tolerate different types of foods. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about, uh, on the keto diet. You know, one of the things that's always emphasized is, you know, lower your sodium, lower your sodium, lower your sodium intake. Turns out on the keto diet, uh, you need to do the opposite because you can get in trouble if you don't have adequate sodium. At least at first. And so what happens is uh, when your insulin levels are running high, which most people's do on a, on a standard diet, uh, insulin signals the body to retain water and salt. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, if your insulin levels are running too high, you will tend to retain fluid. When you drop your insulin levels by dropping your carbohydrate uh, intake, um, you will lose that excess water and, and sodium. You see some gratifying and results on the scale in the first couple of weeks, which is <laughs> very encouraging. That's right. And a lot of people will lose uh, quite a bit of water weight up at the beginning, you know, a few pounds uh, of, of excess water weight. Um, at that's called, you know, that initial diuresis that happens um, as the insulin levels are falling. Now, if you approach the diet too quickly, 
um, those levels can drop too fast and it can be uncomfortable. So you can get headaches and difficulty concentrating and leg cramps and things like that. Uh, so uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, in the book, I not only recommend at least temporary electrolyte supplementation, but also mm-hmm. gradual, gradual, sh- gradual change to the diet. I recommend that everybody, um, you know, do two weeks of that initial, that sort of um, uh, entry-level diet that you were describing before, that they do that for a couple of weeks first to gradually bring their insulin levels down so it's not so much of a shock to the system. Okay. Well, great stuff. Uh, you know, for more information, uh, you can go to uh, Dr. Ead's website, diagnosisdiet.com. And what sort of resources will people find there? Yeah, so on, on Diagnosis Diet, which is my website, um, they'll find lots of free articles about the relationship between food and general health as well as food and mental health. Um, and uh, also the information about the book if you want to explore more about the book. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing is some of the articles on the website, um, you, you'll, you'll find videos as well as articles and, and podcasts and things. But you'll also find if you go to, uh, if you type in insulin resistance into the search bar, um, a few articles down, you'll come to an art, a, a post about insulin resistance, how to diagnose, prevent, and treat insulin resistance. That includes, the reason I mentioned this, it includes a free downloadable PDF uh, listing insulin resistance tests that you can do yourself oh, really? at home. And you don't have to sign up for the newsletter or anything. You just download it. So that I think that's a tool that can get people started this month if they're wanting to improve their metabolic health is just see kind of where they're where they stand on the insulin resistance spectrum is a great first step. Oh, excellent. And then I recommend, of course, your book, Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind, A Powerful Plan to Improve Mood, Overcome Anxiety, and Protect Memory for a Lifetime of Optimal Mental Health. The book uh, certainly can be pre-ordered uh, at the point where we're, this podcast is going to drop, and within uh, a week or two will be available through all the usual sources. Uh, it's a great book. And uh, as an added bonus, uh, you've inspired me, Dr. Ede, to write a a little book review about your book that's going to appear in our Intelligent Medicine newsletter because uh, I think it's a great book and we want to get the word out. So uh, uh, Intelligent Medicine subscribers, uh, stay tuned because you're going to see a little bit of a resume of some of the important points in Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind. Uh, Dr. E, you've done a marvelous job explaining this. Uh, I hope that you embark on a very successful uh, uh, media blitz to get the word out about this. <laughs> Uh, you know, leverage all the social media channels to uh, broadcast your message because I think it's an important one because uh, as a psychiatrist, you know that uh, we need an all of the above approach to mental health in this country because uh, our current methods of dealing with our mental challenges uh, are not really doing all that well. So we need your perspective. Well, amen to that. What you just said about we need we need to pull out all the stops here. This is we really are going in the wrong direction, and there's so much people can do on their own uh, if they have the right information. And I'm really grateful to you for 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 talking to me about the book, helping me, you know, um, talk to your listeners about the book, and and for the review. I look forward to, and I I look forward to your honest impressions of the book. I thank you so much. Well, that's my great pleasure. That's Dr. Georgia Ede. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. And this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I want to thank you for listening to the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. 
follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app and get new episodes automatically downloaded every weekday. And please give us a rating and review. It truly helps new people discover intelligent medicine. The Intelligent Medicine Podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their health care professionals for any such conditions. Finally, please visit drhoffman.com and discover everything intelligent medicine has to offer, including frequently updated unbiased health news and fully vetted product and supplement recommendations. 